Hopefully you got access to a Bible somewhere around your house. Uh, if, uh, if not, I don't know. Not sure what to tell you, right? Uh, but we have been looking at First Peter. Um, somebody asked me why we, we took a break from Romans. Romans is uh, intellectually challenging uh, when we are face-to-face. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think even probably more so over Zoom, where, you know, sometimes the lag cuts out words. Uh, which Romans in its complexity. We'll, we'll return to Romans whenever we start meeting again together. Uh, but for now, we're, we are diving through First Peter, uh, which though a little bit simpler is, uh, you know, still, still rich in, in some great, great, uh, great concepts. And so let's read here First uh, Peter 2. Okay, just a heads up. There, there's a lot in here in, in these 12 verses. Uh, today, we'll look at, you know, two, two very positive things in, in reality. Uh, you know, and, and, and next time we meet up uh, on Zoom, we'll look at kind of the practical uh, uh, effects uh, Jesus as our cornerstone. Uh, we'll look at the practical effects of what that means in our life, you know, day in and day out. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me here uh, to First Peter uh, chapter 2. Uh, I do want to obviously, you know, we got, I think Betsy is on from, from Singapore uh, I think we got someone on from Indonesia. I also want to, to welcome Judith and Jesse uh, from the Zim Church of Christ, uh, you know, Mirio's sisters. So it's great to have them here. Uh, and you can scroll through all the windows and find them all. Amen. Awesome. Let, let's read here. First uh, Peter chapter two. Uh, we'll, we'll start from verse one, though, though we talked a little bit about this last time we met, right? So Peter writes, he says, therefore, Rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobeyed the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to obtain from sinful desires which to abstain from simple desires which wage against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Great, uh, great, great 12 verses here of scripture. Let's have a prayer and then we'll uh, we'll look at a few quick points here. Uh, Father, we uh, we do thank you. We thank you as always just for your word uh, that really is a beacon of light, God. And it does shine into our lives. And we pray you help it, God, even now. Uh, to, to shine into our hearts, into our minds, uh, to, to open our eyes to the, the greatness, uh, the preciousness, 
the power and just how amazing your son is, God. We pray, God, you, you help us, God, no matter what stage we're at, Father, uh, to never lose the sense of gra- gratitude of the great gift we have in, 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 in Jesus. We pray you be with us, God, that your spirit unites us across all, you know, you know, restrictions and geographical borders, God, and to, to remind us that we are your sons and daughters. Again, we thank you and we praise you as all in Christ's name. Amen. As I said, we'll, we'll, we'll talk at two, two very simple points uh, this afternoon. Uh, the first being to, to open, you know, our, our eyes, our need uh, to continually see Jesus as he is and to see the magnitude of, of, of who he is and how he's come into our lives. Uh, and with that, that centrality of Jesus uh, to be ever present, ever, ever cognizant, ever aware of the reality that we have a choice in life to stand on him or to stumble over him. And that's not a one-time choice. That's a, that's a choice day in and day out that we must make. And, and Peter here, in, in, in 1 Peter, he does the same, uh, essentially the same structural uh, outline of his letter that Paul does in virtually all of his letters, and that is really the structural outline of Christianity. And, and, and all, the, all the apostles and even Jesus go to great lengths uh, to, to help us to order our lives properly and even how we approach God. And, and Peter, in the beginning of his letter, he, is, he has spent an enormous amount of ink uh, telling us about the greatness of Jesus. Uh, and only after he's done that and made that very apparent and made that very clear and helped us to connect the dots on what the blessings we have in Christ are, uh, does he begin to shift gears to how that practically plays out in your life and in my life. This is an important structure for, for us as Christians, you know, to understand uh, that it begins with Jesus and what he's done and what he's accomplished and his greatness and, and, and the gifts he's given to us. And we are meant to respond to that incredible message with a changed life. We so often become, can make everything in our lives work-based or performance-based uh, and begin to think I have to do all these various things and be all these various things in order to have the greatness of Jesus in my life. And that's not the gospel message, right? Here in, in, in Peter, uh, in this section we're reading in chapter two here, is kind of concluding that first part of, hey, you got to see the magnitude of Jesus. And it then he begins to shift gears to what that means in your life and in my life. And so this, you know, this afternoon, we'll look at, we'll look at that first part. Uh, of, uh, of who Jesus is and, and, and the importance of him. And then next week, we'll talk about that, the, you know, really tremendous concepts of, of the privileged position we have to be God's royal priesthood and the incredibly challenging charge that, that Peter gives us in, in, in here in, in, in our text of living our lives here and now as foreigners and exiles. But, but for now, let, let, let's look uh, a little bit closer here at, at, at Jesus. You know, and the first point here is, is open your eyes, you know, and, and, you know, I like reading the NET version, as you can see there in that third boil, uh, bullet point, uh, he, he, you know, the NET translates verse, NIV reads verse seven is now to, to you who believe the stone is precious. Uh, you know, the NET says, so you who believe see his value. And, and you probably picked this up as we read uh, through this entire chapter, uh, you know, this this, this high view of Jesus, that he is this living stone chosen by God and precious to him. 
that Jesus is incredibly precious to God. You know, even down there in verse six, it talks about he, he is a chosen and precious cornerstone. Uh, you know, we, we, we closed out with verses, uh, you know, one, one and two, um, two weeks ago when we looked at this text and, and, and in verse two there of the chapter, you know, he, he, he implores us to be like little babies and crave that spiritual milk now that we have tasted that the Lord is good. Uh, you know, and, and over and over we're hit in this chapter with a reminder, man, Jesus is precious. He is chosen. He is incredibly valuable. Uh, that we should hunger and thirst for him. That, that when we do that, we do discover his goodness. And that should motivate us even more uh, to seek after him and to pursue him. Uh, back in, you know, flip, flip back to just to chapter one there. And, and, you know, kind of at the end of his introduction, at the very end of the, of the first paragraph there of three to nine, uh, at the, at the uh, sorry, at three, three all the way down to 12. You know, at the end of verse 12, you know, after he's talked about uh, the, the salvation we have uh, and how that's connected to, to what the Old Testament prophets were talking about and what they searched there, verse 10, uh, intently and with great care, trying to understand this fuller picture of the Messiah and, and Jesus, uh, they, they realized along the way that, you know what, they're never going to see these things in their own lifetime. You know, that's, that's verse 12, uh, that much of their... their their mission and their task of proclaiming God's truth uh, was was only being given to them at their at that at their time uh, in a partial way, and that only together with us, uh, you know, those who live in the, the fulfillment of the age, uh, does it reach completion. And then you get that that little sentence at the end of that paragraph, which says that even angels long to look into these things. You know, and, and this, this greatness, this preciousness uh, of this gift we have in Jesus. And you step back and you look at the, the, the whole scope of God's work and his plan in the world. Uh, and, and to see he's been working for centuries upon centuries, thousands and thousands of years since, since even, you know, the, before the creation of all things, you know. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's been working uh, to bring about his, his son. And so many times the Gospels try to remind us, man, he is incredibly precious. He is chosen. He is the best of the best, the cream of the, of the crop. Uh, you know, and, and I think we can so often just glance over that. And we can miss what is incredibly valuable right underneath our noses. And not search you know, with the zeal that we should uh, which even the angels have, but man, we have this privileged position that they even didn't have, uh, you know, and, and there's lots of great examples. You know, if you ever watch, uh, maybe you got a lot of free time and you're watching more TV, uh, you ever watch Antique Roadshow, and that's kind of a funny show, uh, you know, maybe some of you are too old or too young for that show, but I don't know. Sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's pretty boring, but sometimes it's interesting because you come across these people uh, who, who you know, find what they view as junk in their attic. And it turns out to be incredibly valuable. You know, and this, this vase here that, that, that's on the screen, uh, you know, sold uh, at auction recently, uh, you know, I think like five years ago for, for $1.5 million. Or sorry, not, not, no, no, wrong one. 
$69 million, right? And these guys found it, you know, they were, they were uh, from Middlesex, wherever that is in the, in the UK. Uh, they, you know, a brother and sister, they found it while cleaning out their parents' house, right? Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of a good find in the attic. Uh, you know, but they found it and, you know, they don't think it's worth anything. Uh, take it and get an appraised and find out, man, it's incredibly valuable. And it's just been sitting up in the attic gathering dust, right? And there's lots of stories about this. You know, there's people, stories of people uh, who find rare coins, uh, you know, we, 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 we shove them in vending machines, giving little to no thought about them, you know, and then people finding coins that are, are the first ones that came off uh, the mint and they're worth millions of dollars, right? Uh, and, there's, and there's lots of stories about this in life of, of people having things in their possession, but not understanding the greatness of the value of what they possess. And I think there's an always present danger for us as Christians to lose sight of the tremendous value that we have in Jesus. And you think, do you use adjectives like precious when you think about Jesus and when you talk about Jesus? Do you, do you pursue knowing him and, and, and understanding his teachings and, and following him uh, as, as a great privilege? To be able to come in contact uh, with, with the greatest thing that's ever happened to this world. And so often, you know, we don't, you know, I don't know. I think we've become maybe apathetic, uh, you know, complacent uh, in what we have. And we don't, we don't seek after him. We don't recognize him as we should, you know. And there's lots of great stories of people who had similar, you know, uh, approaches to Jesus. Uh, you know, one of, one of the famous ones in the Christian world is that of Lee Strobel. Uh, you know, he's gone on to write lots of books like The Case for Christ. They've even made that into a movie. You know, but he talks about how his wife became a Christian, you know, it's, uh, you know uh, and, and him being, you know, uh, an atheist, an agnostic, uh, and just thinking, man, why is she wasting her, her, her life? But then he says that he began uh, to, to investigate, you know, and it's that, you know, in, in a lot of his books and even in the movie, he talks about that, that he, he began, the day his wife became a Christian, he began a year and a half journey of investigating Jesus and digging into to, to who is this historical figure uh, that my wife has now begin, begun to follow. You know, and, and he said that you know, at the end of that year and a half journey, uh, you know, he, he, he realizes, and here, here's a quote that, that, you know, from, from uh, one of his books. He says, he says, to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ, and I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to the truth. And he's a great example of a man whose life was turned upside down because, you know, for, for him, Jesus was something that was an inconvenience in his life. He really, he thought it would, would destroy his marriage when his wife became a Christian. He thought it was a waste of time to, 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 to follow him or to know about him. But, but as he began to, to seek and as he began to pursue understanding Jesus, in some sense, his eyes were opened to the preciousness of Jesus. And, and, and his life has been turned upside down. And for many of us on the Zoom chat, we know that to be true. We at one point in our life got fed up with the worthlessness and uselessness of our own lives. And we began to seek Jesus. And all of a sudden, our eyes were opened to how amazing he is. And our lives in that moment are, are turned upside down. Uh, and that's an incredible thing. But man, we cannot 
lose that passion and zeal over the years. The book of Revelation warns us that what can often happen is our love grow cold. That we used to be hot, now we're not. And there's great danger in that, that we forsake our first love. That what we once understood to be of incredible value gets stuck in the attic gathering dust and it's no longer that precious, precious thing in our life that we cherish and that we honor and that we frame our life around. Got to never lose sight of who it is we have in Jesus. Got to open our eyes to his incredible value. Now, when we open our eyes to him and, and see him, uh, you know, he does become this. He becomes this, this cornerstone, right? And here's a picture of, of the cornerstone, uh, one of the cornerstones, um, you know, from uh, Herod's temple uh, in, in, in Israel. You can go see this today. Uh, you can talk to Maney. Maney went there recently. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, a huge, it's a huge chunk of rock that is still there thousands of years later, right? And this thing weighs roughly 50 tons, is seven feet wide and three feet tall. I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge stone. Uh, you know, in, in the ancient world, cornerstones were, were uh, a huge part of, um, of construction of temples, of buildings, of anything that you want to stand the test of time. Uh, a cornerstone was the first one typically laid. It, it oriented and held up the entire project, right? It, it, was, it had to be a stone that had been tested. It couldn't have been freshly cut. Uh, it had to have been proven uh, worthy to withstand the weight and the importance of everything that was going to be built on it. And when we open our eyes to Jesus, that's what he becomes in our life. He literally begins to orientate your life. He get, begins to set the boundaries of, of, of what you're pursuing and what you're going after. Uh, all your faith should be in him, uh, and, and everything you do and all the decisions you make should be rooted in him. You know, and he becomes this sure foundation on what you build, uh, and, and he's such a sure foundation that the text there that we read here in, in chapter 2 uh, in verse 6, it says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's an incredible concept. I don't know about you, but I do a lot of dumb things even now in my life, and for sure in the past I've done heaps of dumb things that I am really ashamed of doing. And this, this lofty promise of, hey, you know what? Building your life on, on cornerstone Jesus, the end result of standing on him will be that you will never be put to shame. Everything else we build on has the potential to disappoint. Many of our lives, not just you know, ours, but around the world, uh, have been turned upside down as, as life has changed through, through, through the virus. And so many of the things that people trust in and look to for glory and for hope have been literally turned upside down and been shown to be of no value. But the scriptures here, and Peter here is telling us, look, if you stand on this cornerstone, you will never be put to shame. He will never disappoint. He and he alone will stand the test of time, you know, and, and, and that's an awesome thought. 
I encourage you to think about, man, is, is, is he the foundation of my life? But, but for many people, he's not the foundation. He actually becomes the very thing that trips them up. You know, and there's a great con- contrast in, in, in our text here uh, of those who stand on Jesus and are never put to shame and those who stumble over this very same thing. And, it, and it's a reminder, you know, and I, we, we had a couple of Bible studies this week, uh, you know, and one of them was with a young guy, uh, you know, who's been reading the Bible a little bit and, and, and digging deeper into Jesus, you know, but he was, in his approach to Jesus, he was kind of trying to be a fence sitter, right? He, he liked the, the benefits Jesus perhaps brought to his life, but he didn't really like the cost and how Jesus as a cornerstone affects all your other relationships and all your other choices. Uh, you know, and sadly, this guy didn't, didn't make a decision to continue to follow Jesus. But he, uh, you know, I think is, is this text in some sense. He stumbles over the stumbling stone. There is no middle ground with Jesus. He either is precious to you and something you, you choose and you want to have in your life, or he becomes something that you have to reject because there is no middle ground with Jesus. There is no middle ground. You read the Gospels and people either end up loving him or they begin plotting for a way to kill him. And here Peter is saying a similar thing. People either begin to take a stand on him or they begin to stumble over him. Uh, you know, and... and Whatever, whatever, however you want to slice it, Jesus divides everything and everyone who comes in contact with him. Philip Yancey in his book, Jesus I Never Knew, uh, talks about this idea. He says, whatever you believe about, the birth of Jesus was so important that it split history into two parts. Everything that has happened on this planet falls into a category before or after Christ. And that's the reality. Jesus divides, you know, and he tells people that in, 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 the, in the Gospels, Luke 14, uh, Matthew 10. Don't, don't think that I've necessarily come to bring peace. He says, I've come to bring sword. And he does divide. Some stand on him and enter into the incredible promise of never being put to shame, uh, but others stumble. Like I said, this is not just a, a one-and-done decision, right? Rachel, Rachel made an awesome decision, uh, got baptized today. That's great, and that's awesome, and we celebrate that along with the angels in heaven celebrating that. But that is just the beginning. Every day, Rachel has to make up, wake up and make a decision to stand on Christ or to stumble over him. And again, we got to be careful, just as with the first point, to not grow complacent. To not think, hey, a decision I made 10 years ago to stand, well, that's still sufficient enough. Because here he warns us, you know, Peter does warn us that, that we, can, uh, we can stumble. You know, two, two times, you know, it gives us, gives us two reasons of, of why we stumble. Uh, and, and sorry, here are the two reasons. We'll hop back to the other slide. Verse 7, he says simply there are some who just do not believe. And verse 8, there's some who stumble because they disobey the message, right? And again, another great quote from, from, from Phil Fiancy, which sheds light on these two reasons. Uh, he says, Jesus never met a disease he could not cure, a birth defect he could not reverse, a demon he could not exercise, but he did meet skeptics he could not convince, and sinners he could not convert. Forgiveness of sins requires an act of will 
on the receiver's part. And some who heard Jesus's strongest words about grace and forgiveness turned away unrepentant. And I love this quote for, 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 for one, you know, one primary reason is the reminder of that Jesus literally could do anything. <laughs> there, was no, there was no problem, no suffering, no, no disease that was, was too much for him to handle. But yet God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that, that for mankind to be able to follow out of love, he cannot infringe on the will of mankind. And our free will can be incredibly stubborn. Incredibly stubborn. And, and the scriptures try to warn us of this so many times. The scriptures go to, to great lengths at times to detail out mankind's capacity for, for even self-deception in regard to this. And even I think in our text, there is this reminder of this, of the fact that there could be such a different perspective between God, who views Jesus as chosen and precious, and man who reject him. And you think about the people who reject Jesus in the Gospels, it's not a, a passive rejection, it's often an aggressive rejection. And I think the two things Peter here talks about, about why do we stumble, right? You know, there are some who just, those who, who do not believe. And even that's an interesting thing. If you remember back to when we went through Romans, you know, that as Paul writes Romans, and specifically, you know, Romans 1 and 2, Paul operates from a perspective that ample evidence has been given to produce faith. He has this viewpoint, you know what? Yes, God is invisible, but his invisible qualities are in fact clearly seen from what has been made, right? And... and you know, I picked up a book recently called The Death of Expertise, and it's a very interesting book. Uh, I've only just begun it. It's not a Christian book, uh, but it's kind of an evaluation of the times. And one of, the, one of the, uh, the, the quotes that I really like from it so far is he says, these are dangerous times. You can see it there on the slide. He says, never had so many people had so much access to so much knowledge and yet have been so resonant to learning anything. Right? And he's talking about this idea, you know, and he, he begins to unpack it more, that we live in the age of information. We have access to information at our fingertips like never before. And yet a lot of times we don't accept plain truth when it hits us in the face. Right? Uh, you know, and he's got lots of funny, well, I don't know. I don't know if they're funny. They're kind of, they are, they are amusing, uh, but they're also somewhat disturbing examples of this, Right. Uh, you know, and, and one of the ones I really liked is, is back in 2014, of course, in the U.S., uh, because as an American, I like making fun of Americans, because uh, I guess I could do that, right? But it says in 2014, the Washington Post, which is a famous newspaper there, uh, polled Americans, so asked Americans whether or not the U.S. should engage in military intervention in the wake of the 2014 Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine. And if you don't remember that, you can Google that on, you know, maybe not right this minute, but you can look back on that, right? So they asked uh, Americans a general question about uh, whether America should enter a war or not, not enter a war. And what they found was correct, was quite interesting. 
they found that respondents actually showed enthusiasm. The, the ones that showed enthusiasm for military intervention, uh, it, it was a direct uh, proportion to the lack of their knowledge about Ukraine. All right. So to say it another way, people who thought Ukraine was was located in Australia were more enthusiastic about the use of U.S. military force. Right. Uh, and, and they had a map with it as well. And most people couldn't even find Ukraine. Uh, you know, but but the guy's point in this is, is that there's something in us. There's something in modern man where we have access to a lot of information, but it's not, it's not producing learner spirit in us. It's actually creating a fair bit of arrogance and narcissism in us, right? Uh, you know, and, and he, he talks about like, look, this is, this is worse than ignorance. He says it's unfounded arrogance, right? Uh, that, that, that we begin to think that all of our opinions even though we don't maybe even have the full picture, are, are equally valuable, right? And, and, he, and he talks about this idea that we, we, we should know a lot more than what we do. Than what we do. And one of the reasons we don't is because we think we know a lot more than we actually do. And I think a lot of times for, for us, man, our lack of faith is a byproduct of us not engaging our minds and seeking Jesus. I mean, if what Paul says in Romans 10, 17 is true, that faith comes from hearing the message, are we reading it as fervently as we should? And when we have legitimate doubts, because I do think the relationship with faith and doubt is an important relationship that ultimately doubt, when responded to in the right way, propels us into deeper faith, but only when it's combined with a humble and learner spirit. And, you know, you think about, man, people stumble because we don't believe. And some of us at times in our Christian walk will stumble because we lose faith. But, but the way we overcome that is by getting a clearer picture of Jesus. But if in our narcissistic arrogance we think we know all things and we think we've unturned every stone and we've read every book and we've really looked as deeply as we should, then we are, we are deeply, deeply deceived. We've got to maintain that hunger that we had at first in our pursuit of Jesus. The second warning that, that, that Peter gives us of why we stumble is, is simple disobedience, right? Simple disobedience. And this is an interesting, uh, maybe you've seen this before, uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, it's a psychological, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it. You can ask Jack, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's a psychological uh, model for understanding human behavior. Uh, you know, and he talks about this Dunning-Kruger, named after the two guys that came up with it, uh, effect. It's a con cognitive bias where people are incompetent at something, are unable to recognize their own incompetence, right? And again, they, there are lots of surveys that, that, that show this. Uh, you know, one, one that he writes about in, in, in this book uh, is this guy, Tom, who's a programmer, and he is the worst programmer in the, com in the company. Tom consistently writes programs that, 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 uh, that don't work. Uh, you know, and, and, and when you follow up with him a month later, he doesn't even remember his own code, right? But when you, when you ask Tom where he ranks, he tends to rank himself as very competent, right? And, and there's studies after studies show this, right? Uh, one study uh, examined, uh, they, they pulled uh, experts in a specific field, and, or, you know, not experts, but, the, you know, the general, the general uh, uh, 
uh, it was professors at a university uh, and they polled them across America and 90% of the professors regarded themselves as above average, which, you know, if you understand statistics, well, that's, that's impossible, right? But again, it's pointing to this, this condition of humankind uh, where, where we don't tend to see where we fall short, you know? And, and, and so the, the, this chart helps us to see uh, that the peak of the amount of stupid uh, usually hinges somewhere around where we don't really know anything. Uh, right. And, and, and our confidence tends to be really high then when it probably shouldn't be really high. Right. Uh, but, you know, our competence can grow uh, and our confidence can grow when, when, when we actually approach the right way, which is through learning. And you may think, well, what in the world is the point of that? Well, we, we stumble because we disobey. But I think one of the things we've got to be, be, be more aware of and more accepting is that, that we a lot of times aren't even aware of our stumblings. We tend to be blind to ourselves. And that's why community is so critical. Community is, 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 is vital for us to uh, not, not be blinded by our blind spots. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, for whatever, you know, we, we, before coronavirus, we, we were a more isolated society. And now that we have forced uh, isolation in some sense, we can become very even, we can become even more isolated. And that's a dangerous thing when you think about the pursuit of Jesus. Because, man, we desperately need one another. We need one another operating in close community in our lives to help us to see areas, lest we end up sitting uh, at the top of the peak of Mount Stupid, as the chart shows. But in reality, we don't actually know what we're doing. We have no competence, Right. Community helps prevent these false ideas about ourselves. And, and I, you know, many of you have heard me say it many times. I, I, I plead with you to make sure you have people in your life. It doesn't have to be everyone because not everyone is going to know you on a depth that, that, that's necessary to do this. But every person has to have some people. Can't just be one person either. But some people that they trust. And do you allow to speak truth into your life to help you to see that, yeah, you are standing on the mount of stupidity and you have no competence in this area. You think you're obeying, but the reality is you're not actually obeying. We all need people like this in our life. Again, people, plural, don't just have one. That's dangerous because they also have blind spots, right? But Proverbs appeals to us to, hey, have many advisors in your life uh, because you know, you think about a lot of the people who, who, who you see in the New Testament stumbling, most of them are completely unaware of the reality that they're about to stumble. And the Apostle Peter, ironically enough, is one of the most obvious case stories of this reality. Right before Jesus is arrested, Jesus is having, you know, the, the Last Supper with the disciples, and he tells Peter, you're going to disown me three times before the rooster crows, before the sun rises the next morning, and Peter is adamant that Jesus is wrong. Peter has uh, very, you know, a high level of confidence, but the reality is he doesn't know what he's talking about. And thankfully, Peter had Jesus there trying to speak truth into, in, into Peter's life, to try to help connect the dots for Peter. And Peter, even after failing, didn't directly connect the dots. Jesus had to come back to him again in John 21 and help those dots get connected more 
but but we got to understand you, you you read this passage you think man okay i don't want to stumble over the stumbling stone i don't want the cornerstone to become the very you know the very one that in some sense trips me up and i fall and i get crushed by him right i want to be someone who stands on him and never put to shame well you've got to have a tremendous learner's experience like the learner's spirit like you did at first but you also need people in your life deep relationships that know you and can help you to see areas that you perhaps don't even want to see. To recognize areas in your life of disobedience that you don't even want to take note of. Right? And if we have that, if we have that, that community, then man, we will be people who stand. And we'll be people who can claim that tremendous promise of, you know what? I'm never going to be put to shame. Because my life is, is, is built on and is sustained by the precious Son of God, Jesus. Amen? So I encourage you to think about those two things. You know, think about, man, how open are my eyes and are my eyes still hungry to see Jesus and to know Jesus and, and, to, and to, to evaluate, hey, am I going to be a man or am I going to be a woman that stands on him or that stumbles over him? Amen.